This podcast is sponsored by JP Morgan Investment Trusts, offering innovative investment options for your stocks and shares ISA. Hello and welcome back to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden and after a three-month break, I don't know where the time went, I'm back to talk to investment trust fund managers about where they're investing and how they view stock markets. As we're approaching the end of the tax year, when many people decide where to invest their annual ISA allowance, it seemed a good idea to take a global view of what's going on. So for my first three podcasts, I've got three global investment trust managers, starting with, I'm delighted to say, Joe Bowenfreund of Asset Value Investors in London. Joe is Chief Executive and Chief Investment Officer of the firm. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the fund manager of its two investment trusts, AVI Global and AVI Japan Opportunities. Hello, Joe. Really good of you to join me. Hi, Gavin. Good to see you. Now, we're going to talk about your trust later, but just to get started, the topic of investment style has become a hot one since the vaccine rally began in November. Could you describe your approach to investment? What style have you got when it comes to stock picking? Well, essentially, um, we're trying to invest in companies that we think are high quality, that have good prospects for long-term growth, but that also are trading cheaply. And our our primary focus here is to look for companies that we think are trading at discounts to their true value. So I guess in terms of style, it really is a combination of what typically has been categorized as value and growth. So we're looking for companies that are trading cheaply, but we are looking for companies that we think will appreciate in value over time. The best of both worlds. That's interesting. So I had you down as a value investor, but it's clear that you, you're, you're, you're thinking of yourself as a, as a bit of both. And uh, and that kind of makes sense. Um, but um, moving on, we've seen a strong rebound, fortunately, in, in markets in the fourth quarter of 2020. But uh, so far this year, stock markets have been quite volatile and seemingly uncertain of their direction. Well, what do you think is going on? Well, you know, stock markets are always interesting. And you're absolutely right. They've been on a good run since March. And in recent weeks, there have been signs of some concern and some volatility coming back. Um, If we look back to 2020, the market was clearly led by those highest growth companies, particularly companies uh, focused on technological change, really the companies that were beneficiaries of a a lockdown environment. And uh, back in November, the market started shifting its focus towards companies that were perhaps more economically sensitive. And along those lines, um, we've started to see in recent weeks, government bond yields around the world start to creep up to reflect the fact that the market is expecting uh, strong economic growth. And that is also another change that the market really has to contend with. And, And changes in sentiment, changes in direction tend to create a little bit of volatility. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. Okay, so yeah, there was a very strong, you know, big crash of when the pandemic struck global stock markets uh, about a year ago, and then the big rebound. So maybe inevitably things are going to cool down a little bit. But I just wonder, you know, did do you think um, uh, did stock markets rise too far and and too fast? And were some investors, you know, becoming a bit complacent about the rebound? Well, I think there were there are certainly pockets of the market that appear to be excessively priced. And those would be the, the, the parts of the market that were most vulnerable to shifts in interest rates and interest rate ex- expectations. So, you know, companies that are a long way off from making a profit that are pricing in huge rates of growth in, in, in their sales and profitability, they, they are vulnerable to, to these kind of shifts. 
Um, elsewhere, certainly since November, when the market started pricing in some kind of return to economic normality, and we've seen um, a bit of a shift from growth to value, if you like, companies that are, are, the, are more economically sensitive, there are questions being raised continually about the efficacy of the vaccine, how quickly economies can, can deal with a vaccine, how, how quickly they can get it through their populations and what impact that's going to have on, on the return to normality. And any, any shift in expectations there will have an impact on, on valuations and investor sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we're seeing that almost day by day, aren't we? Um, I mean, we're talking about the highly rated sort of uh, tech stocks who, who who did very well out of last year's uh, lockdown and restrictions, you know, the whole the digital winners. Um, you know, there's a big sell off in those in, in February. Um, things are settled down a bit. But uh, yeah, was that just a sort of blowing off of some froth after those incredible gains last year we saw in some of those stocks? Or, or, or the start of something more significant? Well, I think at this stage, it's probably just a reminder to investors that, um, you know, not everything goes up continually and that at some point that there can be setbacks. And it was really, I think, a, a, a pause for reflections so that investors can recalibrate, recognise that interest rates, whilst they, they are likely to remain low for long, a long period of time, they they may not remain as low as they are currently, and there may be shifts in that, and that does have an impact on pricing and on valuation. And I think it's a healthy reminder that not everything keeps going up forever and ever. Absolutely, salutary reminder. Now, the the tech sell-off was provoked by uh, the, the sharp fall in the prices of U.S. government bonds, which you've just uh, referred to, and uh, as their prices fell, their yields jumped up, admittedly from really low levels. But yeah, as as you're saying, people are beginning to sort of think about, oh, is there an end to this sort of period of really ultra low interest rates uh, from which, uh, you know, growth companies have been the, the, the main beneficiaries? Is, is that right? Yeah, I think I think that's a, a fair assessment of the scenario. Yeah. And then and within that also, people are getting worried about inflation, um, mm. that interest rates might need to go up because as the economies rebound and regrow, uh, inflation will become more of an issue. Are you worried about rising inflation? One of the reasons that bond markets got so upset last month is because they thought that uh, interest rates would have to rise because of the higher costs in the price of living. I'm not overly concerned about rising inflation at this stage. You know, I think it's likely that... Uh, given the impacts of lockdown in the first part of 2020 and the base effects there, we, we will see some inflation creeping back into the system as 2021 progresses. Uh, but I don't think it, it's the worrying kind of, of inflation. Uh, you know, I think there are still some strong deflationary forces uh, within, within our economies. You know, the prices of our iPhones and iPads are going to keep coming down, I think. So there are deflationary forces and there's a lot of um, slack in the economy. So despite, um, I think, some near-term rises in inflation, I think, which, which we can expect, I think those would feed through the system. And I don't think that at the current point in time, we are facing the worrying high inflation of perhaps the 1970s. OK, that sounds, sounds good. Now, of course, one of the best ways to beat inflation is, is to invest well and get a return that beats inflation and, and grows the real value of your money. I mean, with that in mind, should we have a, take a closer look at some of the, the markets? Now, one of the things about looking at your, uh, your, the, your biggest investment trust, AVI Global, it's about £900 billion stock market value. Um, you know, one of the striking things is that compared to some to the 
global stock market indices um, and, and some of your rivals, you, you've got a lot less in the US. Uh, at the end of January, uh, 17% and, um, and a lot more in Europe. 30% of, of the assets were in Europe, 21% in Asia. And that's excluding uh, the 17% in Japan. Well, we know you've been on Japan and we'll talk about that uh, uh, in a bit because uh, you've got a dedicated investment trust. Uh, it's a global fund, so just 5% in the UK. But uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to um, get your opinion on why do you prefer Europe Asia and Japan uh, over the US and uh, UK? Well, it's not so much that we prefer those economies or those regions over the US or, any, or over any above anything else. It's more about the type of company that we're, we're, we are finding and interested in and the valuations we are seeing and the opportunities. So as I mentioned at the start, we're interested in companies that, that we believe are trading to trading on discounts to their net asset value. And that has led us really to focus on certain types of company. Uh, we are particularly interested in family-controlled holding companies. And we also like investing in certain other closed-end funds where we believe that their valuations are overlooked and there's an opportunity perhaps for some shareholder activism to help uh, drive, drive returns there. And when we look at the family-controlled holding company universe around the world, although they do exist around the world, they tend to, be, they tend to cluster in certain regions. Europe is one and Asia is the other. And they tend not to be particularly common in the US and the UK. So we don't find as many opportunities directly within US listed companies or UK listed companies. But having said that, it's not so much an expression of bullishness on Europe if we buy European holding companies. A lot of the businesses that the holding companies we own in turn own themselves are in fact global businesses. And they're much more exposed to the global economy than, than solely the European economy. Okay, so it's a manifestation of your investment approach. You like buying these. You've got a bit of a fund of funds approach, haven't you? You're buying other investment trusts and other investment companies, as well as these uh, family-controlled holding companies. Can you give us give us a bit more of a flavour about the, the family holding companies? Because they might not be so familiar to people. But one of your um, the ones, that, the big ones in your uh, in the AVI Global are Kinevik in Sweden, which I think is the holding family company for the. Steinbeck family, and then there's yeah. Exor in Italy for the Agnelli family. Could you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they are very, very good examples of exactly the kind of situations we've been uh, focused on during the, the difficult market environment of 2020 and 2021. So Kinevik, as you say, it, uh, is a family-controlled holding company based in, in Sweden. It has a long uh, track record of delivering strong performance for its shareholders and for the family as well. And it's long had an interest in investing in a balanced portfolio that includes more traditional defensive cash flow generating businesses alongside higher growth, um, often technology kind of investments. And it has been a bit of a trailblazer. I was one of the early investors back in the 80s in telecom companies. And those telecom companies today are the cash flow generation generating assets that have funded some of their higher growth um, investments. And we particularly liked uh, Kinovic about a year ago, actually, because its largest holding back then, making up around half of its total value, was a large stake in uh, the European listed e-commerce retailer Zalando. And we particularly wanted to have exposure to e-commerce. We thought it would be a beneficiary of a lockdown economy when people couldn't go to physical stores anymore. And in a difficult and uncertain environment, we saw the prospects for earnings growth at Zalando to be 
pretty good. Um, so alongside Zalando, uh, Kinovic owns stakes in uh, the mobile phone company Tele2. It also has a stake in um, some health technology companies. Uh, uh, Teledoc is a listed one in the US that was formed with the merger of Livongo, a company that, that Kinovic backed. And it's also got unlisted investments in health tech and in fintech. And perhaps prob the, the, the better known of its health tech companies currently is uh, Babylon, uh, which is based in the UK uh, and uses artificial intelligence and, and robot technology uh, to offer medical services um, online to, to customers here in the UK and, as well as the US. Oh, that is interesting. So there's quite a spread of investments there. But um, the Babylon you mentioned, I think you you access that through another holding, uh, VNV Global. Is that what, what's VNV Global? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And it is interesting that we do see some overlap between uh, investments amongst particularly the European families. And there is some element of collaboration. You know, bear in mind that these these companies have been around for five or six generations and uh, they are amongst the wealthiest families in Europe and they like to invest alongside each other. There's certainly some, some degree of comfort. But you're right, uh, we do have exposure to Babylon through another Swedish investment company called VNV Global, which is focused entirely on unlisted, um, unlisted investments, predominantly, again, in the technology sector. And it has a big stake in, in Babylon, which makes up the majority of its uh, NAV. And again, this was something that we added to in AGT quite substantially in, in the spring of, of 2020, because again, we, we saw health tech as one of the areas that would be beneficiaries of the, um, of the global lockdown and the pandemic. But alongside, um, alongside uh, Babylon, VNV also has a stake in, in Voy, which is one of the scooter companies uh, that we are seeing win um, permits, regulatory permits to to operate scooters in cities around around Europe, and they've just awarded something in Southampton today. JP Morgan Investment Trusts have taken the long view, delivering sustainable income and attractive growth through the market's ups and downs for almost 130 years. Find out how you can join us at jpmorgan.co.uk forward slash long view. Now, it all sounds very exciting. I can imagine some of these underlying holdings uh, would be doing very well uh, last year. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in private unquoted companies, particularly those with a technology sort of um, underpin, you know, coming to the market on, on big valuations. In fact, it's uh, you know, some people are thinking it's you know, comparing it to the dot com bubble uh, of, of 99 and 2000. But anyway, that's an, another another topic. But, um, yeah, you're investing in these through the likes of Kinovic, VNV, Global, Exor, I mentioned. Well, uh, that's maybe not doing the tech side so much. But uh, the um, do those investments in those holding companies, how are they doing? Do they you say you buy into them cheaply. Are their shares actually reflecting the, the underlying growth and these sort of digital winners that they're exposed to? Yeah, the, you know, they are doing well and they have, um, at the very least, mirrored the growth in value of their underlying investments. And, uh, you know, when you look at how they are trading at the moment, clearly one reason why we like investing in them is because it gives us access to those high growth quality companies on a discount. So when we look at these opportunities, we're really looking at, at two angles here. To deliver returns to us and our shareholders, we need to see the NAV of those businesses appreciate. But we also, because we are accessing them through structures that are on discounts, we want to see the discount narrow. And, and Kinovic is a very, very good example of how that works. 
And what we saw over the course of 2020 was that what was a 35% plus discount back in March 2020 ended up at the end of 2020 being a premium of almost 10% to NAV. So in addition to the strong NAV growth, we also got the the benefit and the tailwind of the strong discount narrowing and the emergence of a premium. So that's okay, an example Joe, of- Joe, I'll just, just pause you there. Just maybe we just a little explainer just for some of our viewers who uh, may be mystified by, uh, a lot of people know what it is, but some people may not be instantly familiar with NAV. So what you meant there is the net asset value, which is the underlying value of, of the investments that the Investment Trust AVI Global holds. And, and you, as you say, you like to buy these things when they're, when, they're, when they're cheap. And so their shares are trading below that net asset value. And in the case of Kinovic, you're saying that it was actually at a 35% discount below that NAV, but then ended up rallying and going being a premium, 10% more than the NAV by the end of the year. So that's a 45% increase without even taking into account what's happening to the actual things they're investing in. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Very well put. <laughs> Thank you. But I mean, exactly. So you can get a double whammy when things go right. Um, you're getting the uh, the discount narrowing, and you're getting the investment uh, going up. So you got 45 plus plus whatever it was. Uh, yeah. What what did Kinovic do for you uh, last year? Can, do you know? Well, it certainly more than doubled um, double for us, and it was our largest contributor to performance. Fantastic. Well, that kind of answers another question I was going to ask you, which is, was, you know, I, I you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a journalist. I write about investment trusts. I, I like you know what you do, and it's interesting hearing you talk about all your different investment comes and everything but i do wonder sometimes could there just not be a simpler way of doing it you know could you not just either invest in a company like scottish mortgage uh, which also doubled last year broadly or, or, or invest directly in these companies rather than going through through the holding companies do, do you know what i mean i mean I, I, you know what you do is clever uh, it's fascinating but um could you do it in a more straightforward way you could do it in a more straightforward way um absolutely and when you highlight things that have gone particularly well, then it's reasonable to question why you have to make it complicated. You know, if the driver of Kinovic's success was Zalando, then just buy Zalando. Uh, exactly. I guess we're a, li- we're a little bit modest and um, we don't necessarily have the highest degree of confidence that we're able gonna s- to spot the Zalandos in advance. And in a way, the opportunity that's created here by focusing on these kind of companies is to benefit from A, the diversification, and be the expertise of these individual managers or the families behind them and their network as well. And in particular, um, in, many, in many cases, both amongst closed-end funds and, and family-controlled holding companies, there is an element of hidden value. So there are, particularly amongst their unlisted portfolios, companies that you can't access via the listed markets. You know, Babylon, for example, other than through VNV and, and Kinovic, it's, it's, I think it's practically impossible for a stock market investor to get access to it. So it does uh, afford us the opportunity to um, spread the risk, to benefit from their expertise, and to get in early, in, in some cases, to some very attractive undiscovered investments. Absolutely. What well, you mentioned, so we talked about the holding companies, um, and you mentioned the closed end funds. So that's another sort of term for investment trusts. So you are investing in in other investment trusts like uh, AVI Global, but in um, in, in areas like private equity. Uh, that seems to be an area you, you like. Um, you know, a lot of mainstream investment trusts have seen their discounts uh, narrow um, as markets have recovered. 
but um, some, not all, but some of your core holdings actually remain on wide discounts, um, although clearly Kinovic um, is an exception. But how, how can you be sure that, you, that they, you know, these things are going to re-rate and reach fair value? You know, in other words, how do you avoid a value trap? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important question. And uh, you're absolutely right. A lot of what we invest in remains on, on wide discounts. And that, to, to us, re- represents an opportunity. Um, but it could also be, as you suggest, the market being efficient and warning us that these companies deserve to, t- to trade at a discount for a reason. And the way we deal with this is by spending the vast majority of our time and our research efforts on the underlying businesses that these companies own. So again, to use Kinovic as an example, the majority of uh, the investment team at AVI spends their time analyzing companies like Zalando and Babylon and and Tele2 and Teledoc, et cetera, because those are going to be the primary drivers of our return over time. We, We will get lucky sometimes and we will see discounts narrow and in some cases, discounts turn into premium. But the overriding driver of our of our returns will be from investing in high quality businesses that are going to appreciate in value over time. And so that's how we we tend to to think about avoiding value traps by buying them when they're on the wide discount, but ensuring we have a high degree of conviction in the actual underlying businesses we ultimately own. And in time, we believe the discount will take care of itself. But sometimes it doesn't. And um, sometimes right. you have to, you're, you're regarded as an activist investor. Yeah. And that, but that means you, you engage with the, the companies and the boards and the funds that you're investing in. And um, you, know, you want to see them doing things that will help to narrow that discount. So in the past, you know, you've, you've talked about you know, the, the engagement that you're having with uh, a company like Oakley Capital. It's a private equity uh, investment trust, um, an investment trust that invests in the funds that other funds that Oakley Capital run. A few years ago, that was on a really wide discount. And, um, you know, what, 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 what were you, um, I know you were talking to them. What, what sort of things were you saying? What do they need to do to kind of uh, improve? Their- well, I don't want to talk about um, any individual examples amongst uh, our investment trust holdings. But what I would say is that when we as AVI invest in other investment trusts, we have the opportunity to be the largest or amongst the largest shareholders. And we want to use that. Um, to our advantage. And the way we, we think about that is if we are an engaged shareholder, a constructive activist, if you like, then we can help those companies achieve not only growth in their NAV, but also um, deal with the discount and lead to a narrowing of the discounts. So in all the um, investment trust holdings that we have in the portfolio, we are engaging with the boards, hopefully in a constructive manner. We're looking for them to improve standards of corporate governance, to improve disclosure, sometimes to embark on share buybacks or returns of capital. But all of these things that generally contribute to the existence of a discount in the first place, we're trying to deal with and trying to encourage boards to, to take action on and hopefully deliver a narrowing of discounts over time. Yes, essentially you just want to see them kind of doing things to, to, to uh, be on shareholder side. And if shareholders know that the board's on their side, then maybe um, the sentiment will improve. Correct. Absolutely. Well, look, we talked a lot about the holdings in uh, in the Global Trust, but uh, you've got this dedicated uh, Japan Opportunities Trust. So, you know, how keen are you on Japan? Or again, is it just an expression of your uh, investment approach? But uh, with the Japan Opportunities Trust launched about three years ago, you're, you're focusing on um, the smaller companies 
within uh, within the within, within Japan, which are generally you you argue are really undervalued and quite often sitting on lots of cash, which they could do uh, more interesting things with. Um, How is that all going? Well, we're still very very keen on uh, the opportunities that we're finding in Japan, and particularly as you say, amongst the small cap cash rich companies. It's been harder work, I would say, uh, over the last twelve months in Japan. Uh, when it comes to stock market performance. And although um, the, the holdings within our AVI Japan Trust uh, fell with the market in early 20, 2020 and they recovered somewhat from the March lows, they haven't really fully participated in the global rally that we've seen in the last nine months or so. Uh, and that is... Is that and- the best will in the... Joe, sorry, but is that because in the best world in the world, Japanese smaller companies are, you know, might seem a little niche to lots of people outside of Japan? Is that yeah. a fair comment? Yeah, I think I think they are seen as niche, and um, you know, certainly when you look at uh, the research coverage from uh, the sell side, it, it's pretty thin on the ground actually uh, when it comes to small cap Japanese companies. It's not really the primary focus of many investors around the world, and we think that's that's. Um, misguided in a way, because many of these companies are actually, not only are they trading very cheaply in valuation terms, but in some cases, they've got more than 100% of their market cap in cash. And in terms of the, the their operations, in terms of their sales and profits, they're actually performing very, very well indeed. Most of the companies within our portfolio, um, having now reported the quarterly earnings to the end of December, are are running at sales and profits that are above uh, our sort of record levels above where they were pre-COVID. So we think um, that they're very, very attractive. And alongside that, there's a lot of corporate activity building up in Japan. There's, there's a lot of activists pressurizing boards there to do the right thing, to spend the cash more wisely, to try and boost the share prices. And we're seeing some takeovers. We're seeing some hostile takeovers, which is a very rare feature in Japan, some competitive bid situations and some management buyouts. So there's a lot of capital looking for opportunities in Japan. And uh, Japan is fully participating in the uh, global economic recovery. And certainly our companies are. So we think it it is a a very, very interesting opportunity. And one that I think most investors have yet really to, to fully buy into. And, um, and, and could that make, yes, and that could that opportunity be an interesting sort of complement? I mean, Japan, the main part of the stock market, the, the Nikkei index, um, has recently, you know, regained the level it was at uh, 30 years ago before, you know, entering a, a horrible recession and, uh, and, and, pro- and prolonged slump. Um, you know, is that, um, I mean, do you have a view on the, the, the main Japan market, whether that's kind of now... F- approaching fair value and therefore the smaller companies are a good way to kind of find more growth or are they both set to sort of uh, re-rate and uh, advance together? Well when you look at the Japanese market as a whole um, what one sees over the last year is uh, again that whole growth value divergence that we've seen elsewhere and certainly since the lows of March 2020 the growth part of the Japanese market both large cap and small cap has performed very strongly along the lines of growth markets elsewhere in the world. And it's really the small cap value end of the market that has been left behind. Uh, Another interesting feature of Japan is that um, when one looks at foreign capital flows from investors, from international investors into Japan, historically over the past decade, they've they've pretty consistently been um, negative. So they've been outflows out of Japan. Since the end of October, we've seen that trend reverse and we've seen consistent 
positive inflows of foreign capital into Japan. And the signs are that much of that capital has been going into the larger cap names. Uh, and in recent weeks, we've started to see a trickle down effect uh, with a bit of that capital going into the, the cheaper end of the market. As, as you say, the Nikkei's done particularly well. So investors have done well from their Japanese investments and are looking around perhaps for cheaper ways to remain invested in Japan. And I think the small cap value end of the, of the market stands out as particularly attractive. Okay, that's interesting. There does seem to be a lot more going on than, than I was uh, I was appreciating. Um, you know, just thinking about our early conversation about uh, the holdings in AVI Global and some of those family holding companies giving you access to exciting sort of digital uh, companies and, and the like. These Japanese smaller companies, are they, uh, do they have a, any high tech or, a, you know, obvious growth uh, angle on them? Or are they kind of quite traditional, um, more boring companies, to put it crudely? Well, <laughs> well um, yeah, I would say the majority are, to put it politely, old economy type of companies. But within the portfolio, there are pockets of uh, potential um, higher growth situations. And one area that we're particularly keen on in Japan is this concept of digitalization. Uh, and surprisingly, for an economy that's so, so advanced and has given us so much in the way of technology over the years, um, a lot of businesses in Japan found that as we went into lockdown and working from home, they were actually unable to continue to operate without physically coming into the office. They just simply didn't have the technological capability to run their businesses remotely, particularly amongst the small cap end. And even prior to the, the pandemic, uh, government officials were warning Japanese companies that they faced a digital cliff where, whereby their systems will simply not be able to operate efficiently by 2025. And so there, there'd already started to be a bit of a, an encouragement and inducement for companies to invest in improving their digital and technological capabilities. And that, that was only reinforced when the new prime minister, Mr. Suga, came into power and has devoted a lot of energy to this, this concept of digitalization. And we in both AGT and AJOT have a few investments in companies that are beneficiaries of companies investing in improving their software systems in migration to the cloud in the whole concept of digitalization. And, and so those are the higher growth um, situations that we have. So yes, it, it's, it's old economy for the most part, but there are a good few examples of um, what we would term higher growth situations. Now, that's interesting, isn't it, that a, a country that we, we th all think almost is synonymous with sort of high tech has a sort of a sector and a sort of small or medium sized end that is, is, is more old fashioned. I guess that, you know, personally, I, I, it was a comparison made with the States, which again is home of NASDAQ and lots of tech companies. And yet uh, most people seem to write checks or they, they did the last time I was there. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, well, that, that, this is fascinating. So you basically, you're, 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 you're flagging up the kind of overlooked opportunities. Uh, you represent a, a different way of investing in areas like Europe and Japan through uh, undervalued uh, companies and uh, trying to sort of hitch a ride alongside uh, uh, long-standing investors like, like wealthy families. Um, that's been your approach. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And um, well, well, that, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, angle for us to 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 look at the uh, the market this at this time of year with the the ISA season. So um, yeah, any other thoughts you'd like to leave investors investors with uh, as they wonder what to do, where to deploy their uh, annual allowance? Well, I would say that you know we're very excited about our portfolio. We think we are invested in a, a good balance, I would say, of companies that are exposed to some of the technological advances, some of the higher growth opportunities, things like Zalando and e-commerce and, and Babylon in health tech. But at the same time, 
we retain a healthy exposure to more economically sensitive companies, perhaps companies that have struggled in the past 12 months with, with the effects of lockdown and ought to be strong beneficiaries of an economic return to normality. Well, that is the big debate at the moment. How, to what extent is, uh, is, is the recovery uh, going to come back? Is it going to be strong, moderate, or is it going to be varied? We'll, we'll wait and see. I expect to be a bit more of the latter. But, um, uh, Joe, that's all that we've got time for. But uh, thanks very much for um, taking us through your approach, which uh, is definitely different from, from some of the other fund managers uh, I hear from. So, um, yeah, that's really good. And um, we'll, we'll keep in touch. In the meantime, thank you very much. Thanks, Gavin. Good to talk to you. Take the long view on your stocks and shares ISA with JP Morgan Investment Trusts. 